This is fun, isn't it? Um, Please uh, take up that reading from Colossians 2, page 1183. And uh, as I begin, I should say that Hugh and Claire send lots of love. um, And uh, it's great working with Hugh again. I didn't think that would happen. I don't suppose he did. But anyway, it's great to be doing that again. Sends lots of love. They think of you a lot. And uh, you're very much in their prayers. Um, But it's great for me to be here tonight. Hopefully uh, some of you saw uh, Rachel this morning and uh, uh, the children around, although they're a tad shy and didn't particularly feel keen to come to the front. But, you know, I'll show you some photographs of them tomorrow night so you'll get a general idea of where they're at now. But uh, it's great to be here and it's great to be looking at this passage uh, because it's really struck me in particular uh, as a challenge... Uh, particularly after some of the things that we've uh, looked at and faced and experienced in our time in Uganda. So I'd be very grateful if you could have that open and then you can check that what I am saying is what God has said in his word. But I want you to picture a church. It meets on a Sunday morning to encourage and to spur one another on to love and good deeds. There are no surprises there. Churches are doing that all over the world. Except this church doesn't have a building. They're meeting under a tree. They sing songs of sincere joy and profound gratitude to God. There are no surprises there. Christians are doing that all over the world. Except these Christians have no instruments to accompany them. The pastor gets up to teach from the Bible. There are no surprises there. Pastors are doing that all over the world, as I am doing now. Except this pastor lost his Bible when he had to flee his village, and so is doing it from memory. Then a couple of the elders get up to take the collection. No surprises there. Christians since the first century have been giving sacrificially to the work of the gospel just as has happened moments ago. Except none of these Christians has any money at all. So they're collecting together a few grains of maize flour left over from their World Food Program handouts. These will then be given to a few of the orphans in their little group of believers because they have no one to feed them. Tragic, though it is to think about that and to try and imagine it, that actually has been a common scene in war-torn southern Sudan every week. Seems amazing, doesn't it? How is that sort of persevering faith, let alone sacrificial giving, possible? It runs so counter, doesn't it? Counter to our natural instinct for survival, for self-preservation. I hear stories like that and I feel, well, to be honest, I feel pretty inadequate, don't you? I have so much more in material terms. I think I could never manage that sort of faith, could you? However admirable and inspiring it is, I think I couldn't pull that off, could you? 
I guess the important thing is we should recognise that there are pressures coming at us from all over, uh, from all kinds of directions, pressures to make us feel inadequate pretty much of all the time. Uh, You could even argue that actually our culture depends on our feelings of inadequacy. Isn't that how advertising works? You need this. You're not complete without that. What will people think if you don't have this? What image are you presenting if you lack that? Advertising plays on our insecurities. What would happen if we refused to play the game? Credit card companies would flounder. Meadow Hall would close. Good thing. Advertising agencies would go bust. Manufacturing would die completely. The Chancellor of the Exchequer would be up in arms. So it's not going to happen, is it? A modern economy needs its citizens to feel insecure and inadequate if it is to succeed. Now, as if that was not problem enough, there are actually churches as well that play on these insecurities and offer some sort of top-up or even newfangled uh, solutions to us feelings of spiritual inadequacy. After all, if you were planting a church, one of the real temptations is to say, look guys, come to us. We're the ones who really know what we're doing. We can actually supply what's lacking in your current church. You're not getting it there, we can give it. The lure of the exciting, the contemporary, the uplifting, it's hard to resist, isn't it? Especially when you don't feel you're getting it at the moment. Feelings of insecurity and inadequacy. Now these sorts of feelings, I think, were being played upon by the false teachers in Colossae that Paul is having to deal with at uh, long range by writing this letter. Now it's a moot point precisely what these guys were on about, uh, or even if they were separate groups, and it doesn't really matter. The important thing is that they all had the same effect on these Christians. They played on their insecurities. They made them feel insecure. Why? Because they wanted them to go to them. Paul has to warn them and it comes up several times on either side of our little section we're looking at and it becomes clear if I paraphrase them slightly chapter 2 verse 4 just before don't let anyone deceive you by fine sounding arguments don't let anyone deceive you verse 8 don't let anyone kidnap you through hollow and deceptive philosophy And then at the other end, verse 16, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, and so on. And then verse 18, don't let anyone disqualify you for the prize. Now there's a lot going on there, but but you get the general idea. These false teachers were a threat. They sounded good. They used fine-sounding arguments. You see that in verse 4. They sound fine. Why do they sound fine? Because they sounded Christian. That's why they sounded fine. But actually it was just worldliness. Look at verse 8. It depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. It's a devastating verdict, isn't it? What Christian teacher would want that said about their preaching? But these guys, according to Paul, are effectively spiritual tricksters just like the advertising that upholds modern economies, these people very efficiently played on the natural spiritual insecurities 
of these Colossian Christians. So how does Paul deal with them? How does he encourage them? How does he warn them off? Uh, There was a farmer who had lived on the same farm all his life. It was a good farm. You know how it is with the sort of passing years that this farmer began to grow tired of it. He longed for a change, for something better. And every day he he would find a new reason for criticising some aspect of the old place. Something that just didn't quite work, or was just in slightly the wrong place. You know how it is? And finally he decided, well, the time has come to sell. And so he listed the farm with an estate agent who quickly drafted the brochure. He could see the dollar signs all over it. And as you might expect, this estate agent, writing it up, emphasised all the farm's assets. Ideal location with large family-sized farmhouse, stunning views, modern equipment, healthy stock, hectares of fertile land. Sounded marvellous. He was absolutely sure it would be snapped up in no time. Uh, But uh, before getting the the brochure printed, the agent called the farmer and read out the final copy for his approval. And when he'd finished, the the farmer cried out, Stop! I'm not selling! I've been looking for a place like that all my life! Now what Paul does for these Colossians is to do what the farmer did. He shows them that actually there's no need to feel inadequate at all. Because they've got it all already. It's already within their possession. Not just grasp, it's already theirs. And seeing that links back, in fact, to understanding what we saw of those Sudanese brothers and sisters. It shows how they can even contemplate praising God in the midst of their dire, dire circumstances. And in our passage there are three things I think that Paul insists we already have. And by by we, I mean we, this is for every Christian. Not just the select few, or the elite, or the impressive, or the sorted. This is for everybody. That is what we all have if we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing is fullness in Christ. That's verses 9 and 10. Now this is why uh, Paul makes the appeal just before in verse 6. He says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. In other words, he's saying, look, there's no graduation in the Christian life. There's no moving on to the next level. You don't start by following Jesus and then moving on to something else to fill in the gaps. So you don't do your sort of uh, follow-up course uh, and um, expect to have something different from your just-looking course or or whatever it is. I don't know what you call it these days. What's it called? Oh, right. All in the air. We'll see. But basically, um, at All Souls now, one of my jobs is to to, to run something called Discipleship Explored, which is a follow-up from Christianity Explored. And basically, the crucial thing is that both are doing exactly the same thing. Both are about following Jesus. Both have at their heart precisely the same goal. 
There's no graduation once you've done one course and you say, all oh, right, you get a little... There's no sort of certificate you say, right, you've completed Christianity Explored and now you do Discipleship Explored. No. It's exactly the same principle. It is sticking with Jesus, learning more about him. Sure, there's more to learn, but the heart of it is just as you receive Christ, being rooted and sticking with him. There are no gaps, you see, that you, um, you, you find uh, in Jesus. There's nothing missing. So um, when we're described as living in Jesus and him living in us, there's something remarkable going on. Uh, just look at who he is. Verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now just, just think about that. Very familiar words, aren't they? But this is picking up what is gloriously written in chapter 1 about Jesus being the image of the invisible God. In other words, he makes the invisible God visible. The one by whom and for him all things were created. So everything that you see, everything that you smell, touch, feel exists because of him and for him. This is God himself. All the fullness of God is in him. So people who mock Christians and ask, have you seen God then? The answer is obvious. No, but we would have done if we'd lived 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. Because he was there. Which is staggering, isn't it? Because at a particular point in time and space, the fullness of God got his feet muddy on the banks of the Jordan, shielded his mouth from the dust of the Jericho Road, and sweated blood in terror at the thought of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. The fullness of God in bodily form. That is familiar. But get this, look at verse 10. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is head over every power and authority. Do you see that? Do you see the logic? It's absolutely staggering. The fullness of God is in Christ. We are in Christ, and therefore we have some binding, some access to that fullness as well. And this is for every Christian. Paul is not discriminating. This is for us all. Now, here's something that you can do, uh, go away and do for yourselves. Maybe you could print out the whole letter of, uh, to the Colossians. Um, if you've got access to the internet, you can go to a website called BibleGateway.com, BibleGateway.com, and, and basically just print out the whole of Colossians. Uh, if you're the sort of person who doesn't like writing in your Bible then you'd prefer to do this if you do like writing in your Bible, fine but what I think you should do is go through the letter and underline every time you get the word all every time you get the word fullness every time you get the word um, uh, every and always all, always, every and fullness and you'll find that in this little letter they crop up in practically every line this is a letter about Universals about completeness, about having it all. And Paul's saying if you're looking for God, then in Christ, 
you found him completely why look elsewhere why on earth would you want to graduate because you'd only miss out if you moved on from him you don't miss out by sticking with him that's completely illogical but of course I suspect that these false teachers they weren't going around denying the fullness of God in Christ otherwise these arguments wouldn't have sounded fine would they they wouldn't have sounded Christian they were most likely raising doubts about how much of this these Christians could experience or grasp how much of God can you grasp yeah sure everything is in Christ but how much of Christ can you grasp who is confident enough to resist that sort of question who of us feels that there is no room for improvement in our Christian walk hands up who's sorted as I expected uh, people sometimes used to say about Fullwood when I was here that you know, it's full of people who are really sorted and successful and, and going for it. Well, that just proves them wrong. Not a single hand went up. None of us can claim to be sorted. None of us has got it all sussed. But that aside, Paul utterly rejects that approach. And far from casting aspersions, he actually builds confidence. He says, you have been given fullness in Christ. You have been you have it it's yours already the question then is how do I know don't feel different don't look particularly different how do I know how do I know when I've got the, this fullness when to be frank I don't feel like it well we come to the second point we have fullness in Christ secondly we're united with Christ verses 11 and 12 now, um, circumcision is a rather sort of gruesome subject, even at the best of times, let alone on a Sunday evening. Uh, and whenever people start talking about it, most of the blokes are beginning to shuffle rather uncomfortably in their seats. But Paul talks about it, so we can't avoid it. It's a biblical issue, and we need to understand what it is. But actually, far from being something to be ashamed about, it's actually something profoundly wonderful to be overwhelmingly grateful for whether we're male or female. Because you see, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a symbol. It was a sign. A sign that you belonged to God. You didn't belong to God because you were circumcised. You got circumcised because you belonged to God. That way around was important. It was a sign that you were part of his family. In a way, it was a bit like a wedding ring. Uh, Rachel and I gave each other rings, not in order to be married or get married, but as a sign to us and to everyone around that we had married. That we belong to each other. And what I own now belongs to Rachel and vice versa. And it demonstrates that we're off limits to anybody else. She is mine and I am hers. Now what Jesus won in his earthly mission to save the world, he now makes available to all those who belong to him. And the circumcision that he did, though, was different. Look at verse 11. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. Not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but done by Christ. Now the point is that circumcision was an external sign that doesn't achieve anything couldn't make anyone change the way they lived but Jesus does something far far better he changes the heart 
You, you remember Jeremiah saying in Jeremiah chapter 4? Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you men of Judah and people of Jerusalem, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you've done. Burn with no one to quench it. The problem was, that was something that was impossible to do. Humanly speaking. It was saying like, uh, be totally devoted to God... Not just externally, but internally, 24-7. Totally. It's too much. But what was impossible for us is possible for God. And Jesus does it for us. He enables us to belong completely to him. He circumcised each of us in our hearts so that we totally belong to him. That's what happens when someone is converted, when they start following the Lord Jesus. It's like a spiritual surgical operation on our sin, on our rebelliousness. He enables us to put off the sinful nature. Conversion, of course, marks the start of a process, that of overcoming sin. But the point is, everything that needed to be done has been done by Jesus everything completely fully and we receive that we receive all of that on a plate as it were uh, when we trust in him he just offers it to us just like that Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Offered. On a plate. When we first put our trust in the Lord Jesus, we are united to him. We are united so closely that in the words of Paul elsewhere, neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from him. Nothing. Do you get the point? Nothing. That list is not exhaustive. It's meant to make you think. Try and imagine something that can separate you from Christ. And you can't. There's nothing. That is not an exhaustive list. But what it means is that there is nothing that can split you off from him. We are bound so closely to him to the extent that where he goes, I go. If he dies and is raised to life, so am I. I've never forgotten this very simple illustration that uh, I was taught when I first became a Christian. And uh, it's very simple, but it really makes the point. Um, And you can't press it too far, but I think it's helpful. Take this bit of paper. Take this book. You put the paper in the book. You can do this at home. And, And you move the book around. See, it's very easy. It's not dangerous. But it makes the point. You move the book around, and where the book goes, the paper goes. You got it? Now, actually, to make the point even uh, strong, more strongly, you would actually probably want to glue it in to get the idea, wouldn't you? So that actually nothing can pull it out. But where Jesus goes, I go. I am in him. But even that isn't quite strong enough, is it? Because actually, far better 
is to put it in a sort of more personal context. And, and it's actually more like having a union with Christ that is so overwhelming, it's being swept up in the most life-affirming and joy-bringing embrace by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. An embrace that nothing can break. That is the grounds for confidence we can all share. And how do I benefit from that? How do I share in this? Well, verse 12 answers it. It has happened to all of us through your faith in the power of God. Now, if that's not something you've done, then can you at least begin to see the benefits of doing so? It might not have been something you've done yet. I hope it is something you'll do soon. But as you sit now, can you not at least see the benefits of this? This is grounds for all hope after death, for confidence that lasts into eternity. Because Jesus rose from the dead, if I trust in him and am therefore bound to him, I'll also be raised from the dead. Where he goes, I go. Nothing can separate me. What do I need to do? Well, it's no more complicated than trusting him. He offers it on a plate to everybody. He doesn't discriminate. And we simply need to say, yes, please. Thank you. It's as simple as that. And once we do that, we have an embracing union with the fullness of God in Christ and we are swept up into his victory. And that's the third and final point, more briefly. Fullness in Christ, union with Christ, triumphant in Christ. Look at verse 13. You see, our sin, our rebelliousness, killed us. Do you believe that? Paul says in verse 13, You were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. You did not belong to God. You were alienated from God. That's the whole point about uncircumcision, isn't it? You're not in the family. You don't belong. But look what God did. He made you alive with Christ. How did he do that? Look at the verse again. He forgave us all our sins. In other words, he dealt with the root cause of our death, which is our sin. Paul said elsewhere again that the wages of sin, in other words, the just deserts, what sin deserves, the wages of sin is death. For death to be dealt with, sin must be dealt with. And for sin to be dealt with, it must be forgiven. Notice that he says, all our sins. There's that little word again. All our sins. Presumably, when he says all, he means all. That includes, therefore, sins we weren't even aware of, as well as the sins we haven't yet even committed. It's not all except. This is all. Now the question is, how on earth is that possible? Well, the kiva uh, lies in those five words in verse 14, having cancelled the written code. Now the, the word Paul uses for written code tended to mean something like a sort of written IOU. 
You know, if you borrow some money, I don't know, from the church petty cash box in the office, if you borrow some money, uh, you, you might write an IOU on a bit of paper. I can, I, I can see Peter there. I was doing it all the time, wasn't I? But I did pay it back, um, didn't I? Yeah, I did. Yeah, phew. Um, but anyway, um, otherwise the IOU would still remain in the cash box. But, but the whole point is, you say, right, Mark borrowed five pounds. I owe the church. When we sin, we have a terrifying IOU hanging above us. It is the IOU of death. That is what we owe for how we've lived. We are then cut off by God, from God, by our sin and our abject failure to keep the law, the regulations of the law. And the consequences of that are eternal. There's nothing we can do about it by ourselves. But Jesus steps in and pays off our IOU. The debt was too big for us. But he pays it off by dying himself. As verse 14 says, he took it away by nailing it to the cross. He paid the debt I could never pay by dying the death I deserve to die. I love that little phrase in verse 14, he took it away. He took it away. Isn't that a wonderful little phrase? In other words, the account of our lives that has an ever-increasing list of sins and failures is taken away to be incinerated, dealt with by someone else. You know, it's like uh, the rubbish men on Monday morning or whenever it is these days. You know, you put out your bin full of all the rubbish and gunk and everything else and someone comes along, hallelujah, and takes it away. You don't have to think about it again. That's what Jesus has done. He takes it away. That's forgiveness. And it cost Jesus the cross. Not only that, though, there's more. I will finish soon, but we just got to look at this. Look at verse 15. It gives us confidence that our future is not ultimately under threat. All the powers and authorities that were opposed to us, which clearly means the devil and his armies, were exposed for the liars and the evil brutes that they always were. By dying on the cross and rising, Jesus defeated them. Because what looked like the defeat of Christ was in fact the greatest triumph he ever achieved as he conquered them once and for all. They've been totally removed. Their threat has been removed. They're not completely removed from the scene yet, but their end is guaranteed. As verse 10 has made clear, Jesus is head over every power, every authority, and that includes the evil ones. Now, we've skimmed through some complicated things quickly. I'm conscious of that. Uh, but I hope at least you get this main idea. God has done everything that needed to be done for us in Christ. That's all. He's done it all. He brought our forgiveness by taking our debts onto himself. He's defeated all the major threats that lie ahead of us. Sin, death and the devil. All by a dying on the cross. His gift therefore, his gospel is therefore not a salvation by works, not just earning your way, 
but a salvation by gift. It's a gift. A gift of his invincible embrace, which gives us his complete but undeserved forgiveness. Now that is awesome, isn't it? And this is what has been given to us all if we're Christian. From the start. From the start, there's no graduation because he got it all. We have fullness in Christ. He's offered it to us on a plate. Therefore, we need to take Paul's commands very seriously. Don't be deceived. Don't be kidnapped by false ideas. Don't let people judge you if they think you haven't quite got enough. If people are making you feel inadequate, you don't quite go to the right church. Or our church can offer the real spiritual experience or whatever. Don't listen to it. Because it's not about what the church offers. It's about what we have in Christ. Paul's saying, don't let them look, out, look down on you. Because you're not inadequate. You're not lacking. You have it all. If you did feel you were lacking, don't you think that effectively you'd be pointing a few fingers at God and saying, God, you're not doing quite a good enough job for us. This huge list of riches in Christ, this forgiveness, this eternity with him, all these other things surely make other things pale into insignificance. Remember, these are all true whether we feel like it or not. Uh, they are true when we get out of the wrong side of bed, aren't they? Or when we've had a terrible day at the office. They're true when we lose everything. Everything that the world has to offer. Isn't that the secret of our Sudanese brothers and sisters? Isn't that why they can still praise God? In the face of their agonies? And they are agonies. And we should want to relieve them as much as possible, physically and materially in every other way. But they have not lost this. And nor would we if we were in the same situation. Wouldn't we? Now I still have this niggling feeling that I would find it practically impossible if that happened to me. I don't know about you. I, I, I just don't know. And in one sense, none of us knows how we would ever react in extreme situations like that. We don't know. The important thing, I guess, is not so much to worry about that, to worry about how we would cope. The important thing is we should do what Paul tells us to do here, because that will be the acid test for whether or not we realize how much we already have in Christ. Look back at verse 7 as we finish. Be rooted and build up in Jesus. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught. Overflowing with thankfulness. Don't move on from Jesus. Stick with him. Above all, be grateful. What we give thanks for often betrays what we value most. What did you give thanks for this morning? 
last week. Lots of things to give thanks for. A roof over our heads. Good friends. Perhaps a new job. Definitely things to give thanks for. But they might not last. When was the last time we actually spent time praising Jesus for the very fact that we are in him and he is in us and that nothing can take that away? Feeling inadequate? You needn't because you've got it all. Let's pray. Jesus it's hard to believe it's hard to get our minds around this incredible reality that you have given us everything we need we pray that you would help us to understand more and more of what you have done and continue to do in us and we long that this would fill us with overwhelming joy and gratitude. For your glory's sake. Amen.